Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Mark Nathan, for the intro to our guest today, Max Niederhofer. Max is a partner at Hardcore Capital. Hardcore Capital is Europe's consumer tech VC focusing on investing in happiness, and they invest in at the seed in Series A. Some of Max's investments include Italic, Last.fm, and One Fine Stay. Previously, Max was an investor at Excel and founded my blog. In this episode, we focus on investing in communities, the meaning of consumer, and some of the differences when investing and scaling a company in Europe versus the US. Without further ado, here's Max. Max, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thank you for having me very well. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. I want to first start talking about what was your initial attraction to startups and innovation? Yeah, I started spending a lot of time um, online in the late 90s. And when I went to college in 98, the internet kind of became part of my life. It, it was it was there before, but wasn't wasn't central. I'm not sure I was attracted to kind of startups and the internet per se, um, or innovation per se. It was really the internet, kind of computers, network computers that I fell in love with um, as specific kind of technologies. Um, and then I also fell in love with the people you met online in those days, right? So you had these um, sub-communities that were kind of emerging. People were developing their online personas. Um, there's a there's a feeling, um, and this was probably like early 2000s when everyone had a hangover. Those were wonderful days, right? Because it felt like the world had kind of moved on and, and stopped talking up the internet. And now it was just getting, you know, it was time to build some interesting stuff. And it was primarily about stuff being interesting. You know, you had days where there's like a new website and that was an event in itself, right? Like there was something new and really cool and people would start linking to it. You know, people had blogs and blog roles and um, it felt to some extent like the attractive part of it, it felt like it was, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the um, the concept of an axial age, right? So the, uh, you know, what happened kind of 500, you know, BCE was like, you know, people came up with the alphabet to replace hieroglyphics and cuneiform and other forms of writing, right? And and so, you know, people became, became um, much more able to communicate with each other uh, and to record, you know, history, their own history, um, technology. Um, and then that obviously, you know, over time kind of um, percolated into eventually the printing press. And this felt like a continuation of that, right? It felt like everyone suddenly had their own printing press um, and that was something very meaning, like historically meaningful, and it was going to lead to really, really great things. And I think a lot of the um, the turmoil that we see today is an outcome of that. Um, that's what I got attracted to initially. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And in terms of obviously the amount of speed as well of, of communication that you can meet anyone in the world or comment on anything, that was really powerful um, in that kind of Web 1.0. Why did you decide that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? So it was totally random. I always felt like the way I fell into kind of a business education, so I went to business school, um, essentially straight, like in Germany, the way you, you kind of do this is 
you don't really do an undergrad or back then you didn't do an undergrad you, you kind of fall go straight into what, what we call management science and it's a very intellectually unsatisfying course of study um it's social science which means that there aren't any definitive answers, right? Like, I mean, calling it a science is really, you know, a stretch, I think. And and I kind of completed that and was like, well, I want to do some more work that might be a bit deeper. So I started a PhD. And then one of the lecturers I had was a well-known entrepreneur um, in Germany at the time. They'd started a very successful business in the in the bubble and they were setting out to do something new. They asked me to do some work for them. And then we kind of got to a point of where, you know, I spent a lot of time on that on that thing. And, um, and so they invited me to become a co-founder. Got it. What were some of your experiences founding? Because you went on to found a couple other businesses too. Um, what were some of like your learnings in terms of wanting to build um, and building these very innovative companies? So the, the two companies I built were one was kind of like before my first venture experience was my blog, which is a blogging community. And that really kind of comes back to that being attracted of, with this, you know, by the, the internet's ability for anyone to become like to publish themselves, to, to write stuff, to kind of contribute to the body of human knowledge. Um, so we founded kind of Europe's largest blogging community initially in Germany and then, you know, in like seven other countries. We we went into some interesting languages like Persian, which is a total pain in the butt. And <laughs> so uh, that was one. And then the other one was was quite a different business. And I did that in between two kind of stints in venture capital. So I was a pretty terrible entrepreneur. I was motivated by the mission, but that was like motivation number one. And then I was, um, I had no product experience, right? I had very limited engineering experience. I mean, for that business, I did, I did the entire front end and it was really, um, it was really patchy and not particularly good. And then I, you know, I mean, I was in my kind of early twenties and I was like, you know, there are people kind of making money left, right and center. And I was very motivated by the financial side of, of startups. And I think the broadest learning is that if you care about kind of the outcome, like your economic outcome too much, and you don't care that much about the end customer, about the product, about your employees, it's just not enough, right? So I think in my first entrepreneurial stint, I lacked the emotional intelligence to be a, a great entrepreneur. Is that partially the reason why you thought that being a venture capitalist might be a better fit or something that would be a more attractive profession? I mean, I think twofold. One, we did okay. Um, and then um, through some fortuitous circumstances, we ended up making some money from the business. And then I invested in as an angel in an early Web 2.0 company out of Europe called Last.fm, which is a music community. It was a really cool thing. It was like, every time you listen to an MP3 on your computer, they would send the, the kind of ID tags back to the server and build up your listening behavior and then make that available to other people so that you could see your own kind of taste profile and you could see what other people had, you know, and theirs. And then they, in the, on the back of that, they would do like a nearest neighbor analysis of what are other bands you should be listening to? What are other tracks that you might like? And you know, I invested there in 2005 um, alongside my blog co-founders, Joey Ito, um, Reed Hoffman. Um, I think that was the initial group of angel investors. And then we raised from a venture capital firm in, um, in 2006. We raised a Series A. And then 2007, the business was bought by CVS for just kind of under $300 million. And that was just a journey that I was fascinated by because, you know, there was the 100x kind of that I had been looking for as an entrepreneur, right? Like, And it felt intellectually so interesting, much less difficult. I, it felt like I was more made for that role, right? Not to be the center person, not to be in the spotlight, not to have everything resting on your shoulders, but essentially the the guy who kind of spots the stuff that could become amazing. And so that's why I took a job in venture capital during that experience, really. 
when you took a job in venture capital, why did you decide to focus on consumer? And also just how do you think about consumer um, as a, I mean, it's, it's maybe stupid or dumb to say consumer as a category because I think consumer is so wide ranging, but consumer versus enterprise, for example. Yeah. I mean, so two parts of that question. One is initially I didn't focus. I think kind of, you know, in the beginning, especially, so I joined what was then called Atlas Venture, now Accomplice in 2007. Um, and we, we invested really broadly. They were like a full stack tech investor. And I was part of all of that. And I think, I think back then there wasn't that much capital and you could do that. I think from today's perspective, there are so many players who you want to specialization in a variety of ways um, is very helpful to the business. Like I think at this point, it really breeds success to be known for something, to be good at spotting something. I think it helps with kind of converting entrepreneurs into, you know, investments. The best deals are, you know, are deals that you win. Um, everything is, is, is pretty competitive. So it was clear that, that I wanted to specialize. Now, I think there are two dimensions of potential specializations that we could have done. One was kind of the, the coaching aspect. I think hardcore, our firm has you know, a fundamentally different approach to working with founders. At the same time, consumer is something that's very um, transportable. People understand when you say, oh, I only do B2C, B2B2C, right? Like people don't have questions about it. Now, like you alluded to, I kind of take a bit of exception to this consumer moniker. Like we use it because people understand it. But at the same time, it's really like a term that comes from macroeconomics. It's a term that looks at kind of people's function within the economic system. You know, they buy stuff, they buy services, right? They are they are consumers. If you and I look at our lives, who we are, you know, I mean, we're individuals, but not just individuals, right? We're we're persons, right? We have these complex motivations and histories, right? And and we're trying to get stuff done. And buying things is part of you know living our lives, right? Um, in all sorts of different ways because we participate in the economic system. But it's kind of reductionism to think of ourselves as consumers. I think everyone understands that when you when you tell someone, "Well, you're you're a consumer," right? They're kind of like, "Well, no, you know, I'm a human who's like, you know, who's hungry, right? So that's why I'm buying food." But like, don't reduce me to like consumer. So that's also why if you go to our website, it says you know Europe's consumer investor, but but at the same time, it's you know the larger headlines investing in happiness, and that's really what we're about. You know, we want to invest in things that make makes people happy. How do you think about when it comes to investing in happiness, which is quite broad, there's a lot of things that can make you happy, make a man or a woman happy. What does investing in happiness mean to you? It's a simple question, but it's like, I think it's a very broad and potentially deep question. So maybe to make the answer very um, succinct is when we say happiness, it's really shorthand again for something, for a concept called eudaimonia, which is this kind of Greek concept that gets translated as happiness, but that really means human well-being and flourishing, right? So can you make people happy by selling heroin online? Well, briefly, right? In a hedonic sense. That's not obviously what we're about. So we do take exception to some things, right? Like, you know, games that are overly addictive, right? Um, you know, we, we wouldn't have been investors in Jewel. We care about things that, you know, are sustainably um, contributing to someone's well-being and flourishing. That's what investing in happiness means. When you said about games becoming overly addictive and then not happy, like how do you actually measure that as an investor? On the social media kind of outcomes question, I do feel a little bit like the boy who kind of, and I don't want to take too much credit for anything, right? That's that's been going on, right? But 
I do feel a little bit like the boy that kind of comes back with fire and says, hey, look, this warms you, right? And you can cook food on it to make it more consumable, right? Like, and, and you know, and the last scene of that narrative is like him standing in front of the village and all the houses are burning down, right? So that's a little bit how social media feels today, kind of perspective one. Perspective two on that, I think the internet has as a disruptive sort of factor um, was very good at initially attacking the value chains that were fragmented, right? And that had a lot of variation in them. So media, right? Retail, like a lot of those, you know, were impacted because there aren't many gatekeepers there relative to what you can do online. Now, you know, over time, we've seen kind of industries being attacked by the internet that um, that are more oligopolistic in nature, right? So you have kind of education and healthcare that's seen much more um, technology, right? And there, there are significant gatekeepers. They're very kind of, um, you know, entrenched systems. But even there, the internet is nibbling. And then, you know, the other piece where I thought we would see that eventually is government. And so I think what you've seen over the last five years is the the internet is meets meets kind of our governance structures um, in, in a very interesting way. And to be honest, you know, I mean, us sitting... I, I don't know how involved you are in politics. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I don't even vote in this country. So I'm just looking at it, uh, you know, as an outsider. And it's what is happening there is very, very interesting because it's a fundamental threat to any institution. Given the amount of data and facts and narratives that are out there, it makes everyone a professional skeptic, right? So, you know, institutions that were really repositories of a certain narrative, right, and that were really kind of stewards of privileged data no longer have that privileged data. And so that's what's causing a lot of very interesting um, changes. Now, is it going to be net positive at the end of the day? I think so, right? But we're not at a point where that necessarily feels like it's going to be the case. But I think over time, we're going to figure out, you know, as the internet kind of nibbles at these governance structures, like, are there other ways to govern ourselves, right? Are there ways in which by you know, leveraging the power of network computing, we can introduce things like, you know, algorithmic, programmatic sort of um, participation structure. Right now, the internet's being used to essentially mobilize minorities to influence political outcomes. And you can see that at all sorts of levels. You can see it, that's, that's the grassroots kind of like, wh whether it's left wing, right wing, right stuff. It's your local sc school board that's getting attacked, right? Like it's the CRT stuff in schools. It's all sorts of levels where, where you're leveraging passionate minorities that you could now coordinate because of online tech. There's a, a flip side of that, which is that other people can, you know, you could organize participation in the political process much more efficiently and get more people to participate, right? And then actually get to, you know, what would resemble a democratic outcome. You know, that's the second perspective on kind of the, you know, the, the internet and, and maybe the future outlook as well. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, 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 no. And I really appreciate those points. I think getting back to investing in happiness, when you think about investing in companies that serve that purpose, do you also look at the downside? I mean, I imagine it also could be hard to look at downside, meaning that, you know, a platform that maybe once started out as an entertainment platform is now the place you go for news. And as maybe, like you said, uh, a skeptic can kind of hear other people's opinions rather than the incumbents, the professional news sources. And so it actually could become a negative place. How do you measure that if you're looking at a company and you're thinking about happiness? Do you ever think about what could go wrong? Yeah, I think you do. I, listen, the most obvious example I have there is let's do two. So one was a company called Ask FM, one of the Baltic states, and um, it was this Russian team 
right? And it was like, it was on fire. I think you had an equivalent here. I don't remember what it's called, but it's essentially a social platform where you would ask each other anonymous questions. I think the la- latest iteration on this is Curious Cat, right, in, in the US. But you had a bunch, FormSpring, I think was the original one that was like a floodgate investment. It was like growing like mad, right? It was kind of like millions of people were participating. It was super cool. And we started like, we looked at that and we started diligencing it. And the amount of kind of negative user feedback on the consequences of that technology were crazy, right? And as we started to dig, we would find these cases of like bullying all the way to like suicide, right? And and you just underst- like understood that actually this was like, this was having significant negative consequences. So that's number one. I think number two, um, we looked at some of the payday lending platforms that were emerging in Europe. Um, and that was also another one where we, we felt like you know, the narrative was like, oh, we're going to make this a kind of a, this this shady gray marketplace. We're going to turn that into like a clean, well-lit place and so on. And it turned out it was just kind of, you know, people were just rolling loans and getting further into debt and paying kind of 1% a day and stuff. It was like, it was not what it could have been or what's promised to be. So you have to dig with all these platforms, right? Then there are obviously edge cases, right? And I think, you know, look at something like Supercell, right? Gaming platform, very successful, very high engagement, right? the top players spend kind of thousands of dollars on that game. You know, having been like a semi-professional gamer when I was like, <laughs> when I was young, I joke, but I worked like full-time at Activision Blizzard, for, but back then just Blizzard, right, in World of Warcraft. So I would spend like, you know, nine hours read, leading kind of raids. And like, it's not an experience I would want to miss. Like, it doesn't feel like I wasted my life. It was just, it was a cool thing to do for a certain amount of time. I think when you look at kind of the supercell data, you you see that, People go through these heavy gaming periods, but they also churn off them, right? This is these are not like these are not cigarettes in the sense that um, they are going to be kind of actively destroying your life over time without you really noticing. If you look at something like Jewel, it's a hard decision because on the one hand, it was clear that you know Jewel as a smoking cessation narrative um, was revealing itself to be wrong, right? It was not. Um, was not what they pretended to be. In fact, they were getting a lot of young people into smoking or into vaping. And then what emerged there was actually Juul is not very good for you because it has these heavy, heavy metals in the, you know, in the vapor that apparently hurt your lungs, right? So I think there, initially, you might have bought into it, but over time, you know, less so. I think if you want to talk about something that's like that no one likes to talk about, and I'll, I'll give it to you because it's an interesting thing and, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but like the porn epidemic. The porn epidemic, I think, next to social media, is the largest social experiment we're running right now. You know, when I grew up, there was pornography, but it was kind of like magazines, right? And it was hard to access with some VHS stuff. Now you have essentially the string of like hardcore porn that's instantly accessible and all the kids are growing up with it. And like, how's that going to screw us up? Like, how's that rewiring people's brains? You know, are you already able to see that, right? Or is that just kind of like, I don't know, like right-wing panic. I have no idea. It's an interesting outcome of the internet, in my opinion. No, it is. So, I mean, thinking about porn, would that be something that that you would invest in, for example? We can't. We are limited contractually from doing that. There's a bunch of stuff that we we can't do, right? Like, we can't do weapons, right? We can't do pornography. We can't do um, hard liquor, I think. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we just voluntarily limit ourselves relative to our LPs. I also think kind of morally... While there is a drive from like a liberalism perspective to not like make these points, I think there's there's something to be said for you know limiting the amount of capital that flows towards these things. How do you think about Europe currently, the current landscape? I know 
Um, it seems like across the world, um, rounds have really ballooned over the past few years. But we'd love to kind of hear your perspective about how you think about the European landscape overall. When I started investing in Europe or, or started working kind of in venture capital in Europe in 2007, um, it was a much smaller market. You know, you could, I, in 2007, eight, nine, every single company that had some form of institutional backing, like I would know about, right? The large majority I would have met. Um, so I don't think I'd be wrong if I were to say like the, it has grown by like three orders of magnitude. It's like 1,000 times bigger than it used to be. Now you're lucky if you know or have heard of all of the institutional investors in startups in Europe, right? There's no way you can keep all the companies in your head at the same time. So I think that's very interesting. The second is Europe, not unlike the US, is a very diverse sort of thing to talk about, right? The regions are just very like really different. Um, there are some regions that punch way above their weight um, in terms of the startups that come out of there, the companies they produce. I think the Nordics kind of most notably, I think people know that like a punch above their weight on a per capita basis. Um, that started with companies like Skype, um, but obviously now there's um, folks like Spotify and Supercell that, that come out of that. I think London is still the startup hub, which is a little bit the virtue of most of the capital sitting there and it being Anglo, right? So it's always been a little bit the gate to the world, um, at least in the last hundred years. Um, but there's surprising depth across the region. So I think, um, you know, you have companies emerging anywhere in the geography, right? Our, our kind of most highly valued private company, I don't, know, I don't know if that's still true, actually. We're just closing a bunch of rounds. Is Get Your Guide in Berlin, right? Which is a travel company, you know, that comes on the heels of a lot of travel companies coming out of Europe, like Booking, right? Which used to be called Priceline. I think, you know, in the West, the most highly valued um, travel company um, that came out of Europe. So um, there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about those geographies. I would want to say you have something like UiPath, which is a massive IPO. Um, you know, that's a company that now is perceived to be headquartered in New York, but it's really a Romanian company, right? You have Farfetch, which is a company that comes out of the UK, but most of it is actually in Portugal. There's a lot of stuff like that where where things either look American, but are really European, or things look like they're from London, but they're really kind of from a different region in Europe. What do you think are some of, um, since we do have a largely American audience, what do you think are some of like the biggest misconceptions when it comes to Europe? So I can tell you an interesting thing that I think is fundamentally different in Europe versus the US. And it's changing, but but this has been different for quite a while. And I think it's still true. The biggest difference between Europe and the US historically has been a differential in the availability of talent. Um, and what I mean by that is there's been a lot of raw kind of technical talent in Europe, like superb world-class engineering talent. And on the other hand, I'm saying it's raw because that talent hasn't worked on companies that are like internet scale, right? Like there's few companies that are internet scale coming out of Europe, right? So you don't have people who have like been inside of Google and seen what it's like to run something that needs to be available to billions of people, right? On a daily basis. Um, and so that's why I think the talent is raw. On the other hand, like it is very clearly there and it is, you can hire it at a third, a fifth, a tenth of the cost relative to the US. On the other hand, like the other, the flip side of that talent availability um, issue is that um, we've had less like what I would call the professionalized managerial class in Europe. So this is like the middle management layer and maybe even upper management layer of large tech companies, right? We don't have the Sheryl Sandbergs, right? We don't have, right, the VP at, who's been, you know, at Facebook for 10 years and is very highly skilled and wants to move to the next hot company. So the issue of that is like, 
and I think this has been true for U.S. investors, they've just been like, oh, yeah, now you have to hire all these people. And, and the issue is just they're not there, right? So the way you build companies in Europe or the way in the last decade, at least, is that you've had to grow that talent over time. And so the base assumption of talent being readily available wasn't true. Um, and that, I think, has caused a lot of European entrepreneurs to actually become very good at in-house growing managerial layer. How do you think about globalization today? And do you ever think about a company or a set of ideas that have worked really well in the US that might be actually also interesting European companies that could come out of it? Yeah, so I mean, I think historically that's been the funnel, right? Like stuff gets tried out in the US, it's seen to get traction, and then a bunch of entrepreneurs copy that really quickly, right? And that was kind of the initial... Uh, thinking behind, you know, Rocket Internet, right? It was like, can we build this clone factory of doing stuff that gets to traction in the US, right? And then we don't have to experiment so much with other things. It's a bit unfortunate from my perspective. Like, I hate kind of that approach of like just trying to do what other people have done successfully. On the other hand, it has worked historically. Um, and now it's getting to the point of where people are copying these things before they're even proven in the US, right? Like, so we're seeing a bunch of like, you know, company does 20, 30, 40 million kind of Series A in the US based on kind of a cool concept, a great team and a lot of promise. A couple of weeks later, right, everyone's read that article on TechCrunch or wherever, and it's like four or five teams trying to do that. And I think the earliest craze we saw that with was like Groupon. And the latest one is um, Estrazio, right? It's so the Amazon kind of, you know, trying to buy Amazon merchants, turning that into kind of a, a, um, a roll-up business. So um, listen, I think the most interesting part of the internet's development is this experimentation of finding out what works, what doesn't work, and what can be the next big thing, right? So it's not the one-to-end stuff, if you want to talk about it with like a Telian verbiage, right? It's it's the zero-to-one. From my perspective, there is not enough zero-to-one in Europe. I wish there were more. Um, and I think we are also taking too many cues from the Western internet, right? From the US-led internet and not enough from Asia. Um, so we continually kind of look for people who actually have, um, in particular, Chinese internet insight and are, are leveraging some of those insights and bringing them to Europe. I think that's super, super cool. What are some of the differences between that you see between like Europe and Asia in terms of how you think about maybe how a person, um, I'd say, but consumes or maybe just like habit and behavior? Yeah. Um, so first of all, like, I do think people talk about the kind of um, funnel a lot of like Chinese kind of product innovation ideas, startups, right, coming to the to to the U.S. to the West. I don't think I've seen a lot of that, right? Where's our WePay? Where's our Pinduoduo? Right? Like, I think you know we we invested in one company that was clearly inspired by you know a, a kind of net ease subsidiary, but like, so I don't see a lot of it, right? I don't see the lessons of e-commerce, right? You know, video on product pages and so on, really panning out in the U- in Europe thus far. So. I do think there are very, very interesting um, things in Asia that aren't replicating in Europe to the to the same extent. For example, the influencer relationships in Asia are much closer, right? Like, so we have you know micro influencers in China, um, Korea, Japan that um, that have very loyal following. You don't really see that sort of thing in um, in Europe. Um, I think the um, um, the broader point, perhaps, is that there are cultural differences, right? And I don't want to overstep that or like try to overinterpret it too much. Um, the most interesting part of me, as like from a from a consumer investing point of view, is how stable consumer desires are across cultures, right? Across regions, um, 
everyone needs to eat. Everyone needs a house, you know, a roof over their head. Everyone needs to be entertained. Everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to belong to something. You know, the, these like the, the innate human desires are much, you know, closer to, you know, than, you know, are much, um, we're much more similar than, than, you know, our cultural differences would imply. I do think there is a more collectivist view in Asia in general, and, and that the West has this very individual kind of uh, liberal lifestyle that perhaps even in the US is, is more pronounced than in Europe. But Europe has followed that for a very long time as well. And so I do think we are, in our consumption habits, are splitting more into single households, right? The secular trends, like our demographics are very clear in terms of kind of our birth rates, um, where that is going. I think more, like more and more people are deciding not to have children. More and more people have, you know, have pets as a substitute, if you will. So I think in terms of like, there are significant differences if you look at the, the, the especially the demographic patterns. Um, but in the end, you know, our motivations are very similar. So exploring those, I think, is interesting. What is next to consumer? What you're, what are you really excited about right now? I think the 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 kind of overall thesis you've understood it's investing in happiness, right? Um, that's really kind of uh, contained in the hardcore brands, like loving the end customer. Um, so within that, I think our three pieces right now that we are excited about. Um, we put out this report once a year um, at, at hardcore.com slash insights if you want to download it. And that looks at kind of like, you know, food and finance and retail and travel and all different consumer spend categories. So like, I don't really want to spend time going through each of those. Um, I think headline, there are three things that we're working on that I, I would love to see more ideas in, right? And I, the first one is kind of decision-making and automation, Right now, online, like the algorithms are working on influencing your buying behavior, right? So what I'm interested in buying is influenced by what I'm consuming on social media. Um, you know, we're an innately kind of social mimetic creatures. We we develop our desire, desires by seeing what other people talk about and what other people buy. So I think you derive your desires from kind of what you see online, right? And then you get to an ad on Instagram or where, wherever that's optimized kind of for you to click through. You land on a landing page that's been iterated, you know, a thousand times to optimize for you, you to add something to cart. And you're buying a product that's been iterated on, right? Like to make you buy it. And so you're really kind of at like as a consumer, you're sitting at the, you know, at the, on the tail end of what are essentially weaponized algorithms to influence your behavior, to get you to spend money. And I think the biggest opportunity in consumers to turn that around and to say, well, what does it look like, you know, if we acted on behalf of the end customer, right? If, that, if, we, if we actually put the end customer's desire in the center. So for me, the most obvious opportunity is kind of in complex decisions um, that are currently made on like bias, pattern matching, right? Kind of intuition. It's the large purchases, like complex ones, like where do I buy a house? And then, but then also kind of the, the complicated ones that you don't really have time for, like what home insurance do you purchase, right? Which is a very complicated contract, right? That most people don't read. Everyone knows they should have one. Um, and then there's like the small recurring, like non-discretionary ones, like what mobile phone contract do you purchase, right? The amount of money that people lose in these areas, like in the large decisions or like the recurring kind of implicit ones is, is crazy. I, like, I'll give you another example. I, are you familiar with price walking? So, so you, you get an insurance contract for your car, right? And it, um, it tends to go up a little bit, right? 
all the time, like every six months, whatever contract you're on, like every six months, it, it goes up, you know, like 10 bucks, five bucks, 15 bucks. Like you, you're kind of like, well, I don't know. Like it's not enough for you to change. Right. So companies exploit this like inattention and the inertia of like people. Right. Um, and so you stick with a provider. The optimal way would be, would be to kind of get up in their business and be like every six months and be like, Hey man, like why is it 15 bucks more? Like, you know, give me the rate that other like new customers get, right? But no one, like very few people really do that. It's uncomfortable. It takes a lot of time. That should be programmatic, that stuff, right? Analyzing all of these kind of like recurring non-discretionary things in your life. Um, there should be an algorithm that works on your behalf. And so that that's kind of something that I'm really spending a lot of time on, like decision-making automation for consumers. The other one is like the new world of work um, where I think historically, um, uh, yeah, again, if you take a very big arc, there's like transaction cost theory that determines the boundaries of the firm, right? How large should companies be depends on kind of the marginal costs of like making contracts. But what's the consumer point of view? The consumer point of view is like, I don't want to work for a big, boring company that where I have to sit in a cubicle every day, right? And so what the internet has done, it's like atomized these relationships. You know, previously, if you were like a super highly skilled freelancer, like a designer or like a great copywriter, you can always work for yourself, right? But now, if you're pretty good at knitting, you can make a living online, right? And that's like, that was my realization for, of, of like Etsy, that it's like this, this kind of sub-economy that's like of makers who make and sell and makers who buy as well, right? Like, so there's a lot of makers actually are, are Etsy customers. Um, and that's a very interesting kind of economy, right? And I think you're seeing it again, right, um, in all of the creator economy things. But, but I think like more interesting to me than like, stuff for semi-professional kind of like media organizations is this is is like the gum roads of this world right like is the you know are they like what is the next shot like shopify i mean shopify you, at this point you need to really really deeply care about like you know uh integrating different tools right to make that a good like thing right and most people don't want to do that they don't care they don't understand like like why can't you like shouldn't there be a, an easier kind of shopify for like part-time creators right and i think there are a lot of other opportunities for people who want to be like half in the labor market half out it seems to me like to be a you know that world of work is kind of just emerging um right and uber and lyft and so on like all the gig economy stuff that's one that's like the commodified sort of side of that market i think there's another side of it that's going to come um and the last one is like i think we've we touched on it briefly is this integrated kind of worldview people want meaning and purpose um I think any company, um, any brand, right, that um, that is able to solve that um, for people will be an interesting one. The biggest opportunity, right, if you want, is like um, is a is a belief system, and that is um, I don't think anyone's explicitly building that right now. Maybe in crypto, right, but like I think the um, I I do think that. Um, people are a bit lost. And um, and a lot of the stuff that I talked about briefly, like the Aquinas, is like, that takes a, sh you know, a shit ton of work to actually try and kind of like get your head around. Where's the more simple system, right? Like, if you think historically about, about kind of religion, there have always been like multiple narratives, right? Like, so, you know, for the one that I know well, right? Like, you know, there's the children level story, which is like, God is the father and he sits in heaven, which is in the sky, right? Like, but then 
right? Like you go a level above that and it's like, well, no, like God is not a being. He's like transcendent, imminent in the world. Okay, right? And then there's like another level above that, which is kind of like where the, you know, philosophy meets religion, which is really like God is, right? not a being but it is but but is the concept of being right and um and that's where you kind of developing that kind of narrative for a modern world for people who are de facto atheists right who de facto who have a, like primarily scientific like materialistic realism view of the world is very interesting right and i think you can see the demand for that with yoga and meditation and you know and and kind of self help the internet is the perfect platform for a charismatic leader, right? Who comes and actually, you know, I don't want to say weaponizes again, right? Like, but essentially creates something, right? That has a potential to be like a, a worldwide, very interesting new religious movement. Now, does that have a flip side to it? Yes, right? Is there a danger? Yes. Is that like, is it going to result in like, you know, more Trump? Yes, right? Like, like all of that's true. But it's, I do think it's a very interesting opportunity and people are, um, they're really hungering for something like that. What's your process of analyzing founders and, and also analyzing companies? Um, on the founder assessment piece, you know, we, we don't have a formalized scorecard, but we have developed stuff over time that allows us to use language. Um, the, the founder assessment piece is a bit hard, right? Like, because I do think of this as like sitting in judgment of your betters, right? Like it's um, fundamentally founders are, amazing people that you know are really trying to get something done and we're just kind of like these people in the background that are part of the resources they need we often you know like ev like everyone in venture we often get things wrong so i don't want people to overinterpret that but it's um i think the things that i in particular look for are kind of execution capability um and the indicators would you know be how fast does someone work like do they do they work hard right um I think great communication skills, like how clear can someone communicate um, in writing, in speech? Um, I think that gets leveraged with like team partners, investors, it's super important. How self-aware are they, right? Are they able to evolve? I, I think this gets kind of encapsulated in growth mindset, right? Like do they have flexibility, imagination to kind of change things as they need to be? And this is a rare one. Like you want someone who has the great big vision, right? Like the 30, 50,000 foot view of where this is going to go, right? They have this five-year plan in their head. Um, they're able to kind of see and communicate that big picture. But then you also want someone who sweats the details, right? Who actually is like, who knows how it's going at the moment. I think you can see great founders in recruitment skills, like getting people to get on the bus before there even is a bus um, is, is um, a skill that we look for. Do they prioritize that team and that company building? Salesmanship, charisma, right? Like, can they sell the company to other people? Um, like, comes out of all of that, I think. Um, I think we like to see unfair advantage in the sense of, like, domain, not just expertise, but really domain insight. Um, so do they have kind of a category advantage from past experiences? Um, I think overall, you want to see kind of perseverance, tenacity, grit. You don't want people to give up. Um, something we really look for um, is social cohesion between the founders. So not just, like... Complementarity is nice, right? Like when someone has strengths and that complements others' weaknesses. But it's but what you really want is you want teams to kind of stick it, uh, like to stick with each other through thick and thin, right? Because you do have this roller coaster of the startup experience. Um, and then finally, like I really care about is someone in it for more than the money, right? Like which might be personal bias, right? But I do like people having this servant leader sort of um, approach to building a company. Yeah, that's that's really kind of 
would be my founder assessment scorecard, and it's evolving, right? Just because the feedback cycles in venture capital are so long, um, you know, you, you don't really always know what teams will work out. What's one book that inspired you personally? What book that inspired you professionally? So professionally, I think every entrepreneur needs to read The Great CEO Within. And I don't even know the author, but The Great CEO Within is like the operating system for startups that I think is, is you know, more important from a scaling perspective than a lot of other stuff that's come before it. Um, it's short. It's very usable. Um, it's a little bit like like a programming book in the sense that like you can't, like you actually have to do the exercises, right? To to um, to see whether you've understood it all. But I think um, I think it's very very valuable in my personal life. Oh man, it's so hard to narrow it down to one book. Um, I think we have a meaning crisis in the West that is a pervasive um, issue, and I think we are going to see the resurgence of kind of. Um, narratives, you know, traditional narratives to help that. And I would encourage everyone to read stuff from a long time ago, right? So the long time ago stuff, like read Aquinas, right? Um, you know, read um, read Augustine, right? And this is, it's coming because I'm coming out of this kind of, you know, possibly Catholic perspective on the world. But I think those are very, very valuable. Say, like, if you ask me, like, you know, what makes significant difference kind of to your happiness, right? It is a, it is a well-integrated worldview, right? Um, that allows you to form kind of a, you know, a personality that integrates all aspects of yourself, like it integrates, you know, your desire to acquire wealth. It integrates your aggression. It integrates, right. Your, your, your need to belong to something, you know, it integrates all kind of aspects of yourself. And that um, I think intellectually requires kind of an integrated worldview and, 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 you're not going to find that on social media, right? You're going to find that in people who have, you know, who have thought about it and the stuff that's been developed over a long period of time. My last question to you is what's, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders or maybe the best piece of advice that you've ever received? At the core of what we do, right? Like the hardcore capital ethos of doing things. Like I think we talked about it a bit briefly, right? It is really willing the good of the other as other, which interestingly is Aquinas' conception of love for the end customer. Um, we construe this in a similar way as love for the entrepreneur, right? There is the entrepreneur comes first for us, not just in the sense of, you know, founders first, right? Like we're founder friendly, blah, blah, blah. It really is entrepreneurship is a journey of personal growth as much as it is a growth of the company, because you have to become from some person, you know, who has a spreadsheet and a, you know, a PowerPoint and a, you know, and a plan and a prototype, you have to grow into someone who is leading a team of 20, 50, 500 people, right into, um, that's a company, whether you want it or not, right? Like and it'll have an operating system as a company, right? And, and, and that's a very, very difficult thing to become. That's kind of where we, take this coaching approach to 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 helping people grow right and that's um i think fundamentally different from the way a lot of vcs um have a playbook right they have prescriptions they have like they you know the they bang their fists on the boardroom table like that's really not how we operate that ethos however um also implies something right if we tell the the entrepreneur you know you need to put the good of your end customer into the center of what you do right into the like that's your organization's mission um 
the best advice that I think we give founders is to put the good of their employees at the center of the organization. This is not a factory floor where you have, you know, people who are doing the same movement again and again every day and you essentially, you know, are cracking the whip via time cards, right, and quotas that they have to fulfill. It doesn't work that way. Um, most companies will do the best, most productive work if they're inspired by that vision of the founder, if they have the end good of the end customer, you know, at heart, and they only do that if they are, you know, if they are treated um, in a certain way. And so we kind of want people to take that hardcore ethos and build that type of organization. Um, and frequently, when people are motivated by kind of mission, right, or um, or kind of the attractiveness of, of, of like being an entrepreneur, um, that piece is not yet fully developed within them. Because they're super smart, right? Like they're amazing people, right? They, they've done amazing things and now they're going to do something amazing more. And then they are starting to hire people who are, you know, maybe not as smart as them. Maybe, uh, you know, they're, they're coming in there and, uh, you know, the 200th hire you do, may, you know, maybe for that person, it's just a job, right? And like, and how, so how do you kind of like get them to do their best work, right? How do you get them to reach their full potential? I think those are like, those are very interesting questions. And those are, you know, we confront, entrepreneurs very early with that the way i encapsulate it is really um okay so like you figured out what you want to do but like now it's about like building the machine that builds the machine right like so it's the second derivation of like of the company building that i think um we kind of help them shift their um uh, we help them shift their their view to max this has been so much fun thanks again for your time thank you so much for having me this is uh is a lot of fun and there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Max on the show. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at Max Niederhofer. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.